was thinking, oh, give me, 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 can I have that? Nope, nope, not that, that. Thanks. <clears throat> I'm going to mess your music up here bad, McCorrell. I'll probably put the last one where it belongs. The, uh, I was thinking when we were worshiping about the song, Come You Sinners, and I thought, um, I really, really like that. I like songs that are not only fun to sing, but have great theology. And, and we do sing good songs at Hope, but sometimes... These songs, some of them have just great, great lyrics. And this, this line here, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Now listen, I, if I can get this, you can get it, because I went to public school in the Iron Range, Hibbing, Minnesota. I can get this. This is, this is good stuff, though. Listen to this. Let not conscience make you linger. In other words, are there things in your life that say, I'm not good enough? I'm not good enough to come to you, Jesus. And then it says, nor a fitness fondly dream. If only I could clean myself up, then I'll come to you. That's what that's saying. And then it says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Man, that'll preach as we like to say in the business. When we, when we came to this building, um, there was a stage that was different than the stage that I'm currently on. The stage that was here at that time was a stage that was equal to this height all the way around. There was an access point over there, and I believe, Roland, wasn't there a stair over here or something too? There were stairs over here, and we cut that all out, and we, we decided we want, we thought that uh, a, a stage or a front or architecture has a theology behind it. And what this said before was, to us at least it said, it said, God is majestic and awesome and mighty and holy, but it also said, stay away. We wanted the first part. God is majestic and awesome and holy. And you can see it in some of the architecture here. And if you just look around this building, this was built way back before anybody cared about money. Uh, it's just amazing how, what they did here. And in fact, I heard even that the, the church even had a hard time. The original people who built this church had a hard time because they spent a little too much on the building. Thank you for their problems, not ours. But um, we wanted to say all that's true, but we didn't just want a little bit of a little stairway here. We could have done with that. We wanted a big wraparound stair. It says all the fitness he requires is for you to feel your need of him. And there's, there's, a, there's a rationale there. It's exactly our theology in a nutshell here at Hope Community. His God is majestic. He's awesome. He's holy. He's power, more powerful than you can possibly imagine. He knows everything. He can do anything that doesn't deny who he would be. And in spite of this, also down on one knee, beckoning you to come towards him. That, that's the, that's the, the feeling we want you to have at Hope. And I hope through our songs and through everything, if you're brand new to Hope, you just heard everything. You can just check out. That is what we are going to talk about. We have been talking about that right now. We're in the Gospel of John. And uh, the Gospel of John is big time about this, showing off Jesus Christ, showing off God to be awesome, but also intensely accessible. But not like a buddy and slap him on the back, no big deal, God's a big Santa Claus in the sky. No, a God who's accessible, but also awesome and sovereign and, and, and in control of all things. And Jesus is just portrayed in the Gospel of John majestically. I highly commend this book of the Bible to you, even though we only have three more weeks left in it. 
And I'm bummed about that. I feel like we just start over. Start again, John 1.1. Next, start in the middle of September here, but we're not going to do that. There's 65 other books in the Bible. We're going to spend some time there too. Now, right now where we're at in the Gospel of John, if you want to open up your Bibles, we're in John chapter 20. What we've been looking at is Jesus has been crucified and he was raised from the dead in the beginning of John chapter 20. And then what happens is he not only is raised from the dead, you find an empty tomb, you also find he's going to appear. If you put all the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, you're going to find that you're going to find five different gospel, uh, excuse me, five different resurrected appointments, or Jesus will appear in five different places. Okay? On that first Sunday, on Easter Sunday, if you put them all together, you're going to get at least five. Maybe there's more, but there's five that they wrote about. After that, you're going to find five more. We're going to look at one of them today, probably the most famous one of them today. And then you're going to find other ones. And then the last one is, which would be a sixth one, which is kind of different, is how he appears to, to the Apostle Paul. And that's what's written about in scriptures. There's 11 appearances of Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. Now, Two weeks ago, wait, three weeks ago, because we had a week off there, we looked at Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene. Now, I've been looking at this picture. I know I've been looking at this one, uh, put this up for it, and I think it's kind of humorous. But you remember where in the, in the passage this week, if you just look at the picture now, remember in the passage where it says uh, Mary thought he was the gardener? Well, of course he's the gardener, because he's got a shovel. Look at that. I didn't realize that. I mean... <laughs> Jesus tricks these. Master lies to us. Has a shovel. Uh, you know, it's like, <laughs> what's a shovel for? Anyway, I, I, I couldn't paint. I couldn't paint like that if we're painting by numbers, so I shouldn't give a hard time, but it's, it's quite humorous. Then, then last week, we looked at, we looked at uh, Jesus appearing to ten revolutionaries. Ten guys who eventually would turn the world upside down with the message of Christianity. And he appeared to the, the disciples in a locked room. He shows up. And it, it's an amazing, amazing account of him transforming these guys. Now, this week, we're going to look at one of the guys. Remember I said ten. One of them was Judas, and he hanged himself, so he's no longer around. I don't have 12 fingers. This would work good if I did. But anyway, uh, but, and then the other guy, my 11th finger over here, is Thomas. And Thomas wasn't there at the first one. We're going to see probably the most famous account of Jesus' appearance after Easter Sunday Today, we're going to look at this, and it's in John chapter, uh, John chapter 20. So if you want to flip open to that, there is no insert today. Sorry about that. All this PowerPoint stuff is always online. John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. We're going to look at this occurrence right here. And it's, it's, there's a famous painting called the Incredulity. Incredulity. I practice that word too. Can't even say it. Incredulity, right? Incredulity. Incred, the, the incredulousness of St. <laughs> Thomas. In other words, his skepticism. And this is a very graphic picture. Huh? I mean, this guy's got his index finger to the joint parked in Jesus' side. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty amazing. And you can see his expression there. It's kind of like, whoa, that's, I'm in. I'm inside. So, <laughs> Thomas, often called Doubting Thomas. We'll look at why that is. We'll look at whether or not that's a fair assessment for good old Tommy. And he is probably the most famous account other than the Easter accounts. Okay, let's take a look at this. It's only seven verses today uh, that we're going to be looking at. But don't worry, I added a whole bunch more. <laughs> You're going to get your money's worth. Here we go. 
John chapter 20, starting verse 20. I'm going to read through the whole account, and then we're going to kind of look at it piece by piece. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where, where the nails were and put my, hands, put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas this time was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in, into, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is an awesome passage. This is, this is great. This is a great section of scripture. Um, let's take a look at this a little bit at that time. First of all, it says Thomas, his name is Didymus. Both those phrases basically mean twin. So we don't know who Thomas's twin is. He is... He is uh, a twin of some kind. That's his name. So who is this Thomas guy? Let's take a look. at. It's the only place in the Gospels, of all the four Gospels, the other people just list him, but John has two other places where we get to learn a little bit more about Thomas. And it's worth our time just to look at who this Thomas guy was. It says, in John chapter 11... Uh, verses 14 to 16, the whole deal of of whether or not they're going to go to Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus was died, and they're going to go back, and the the way they have to go back is to a very, very dangerous place, a place where they are pretty sure that if they go there, they're all going to die, okay? So Jesus says to them, Jesus says that he is Jesus, so then he, Jesus, told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, because they weren't getting it. Jesus, Jesus said, listen, he's dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. And he meant it. Okay? So, let's cut Thomas some slack here. They knew that if they went back to this area, this on the road to Jerusalem, they go back there, there's a very good chance that they would get killed. Because it, earlier in this, they say, hey, they tried to stone you there. Don't you remember that? It's not a good idea to go there. Thomas says, Jesus wants to go. Guys, let's obey him. Let's go. We're going to die with him. Okay, so hardly this quivering wimp that you often get a picture of when you think of Thomas. Thomas was a tough guy. All right? Thomas was a fisherman, commercial fisherman. He definitely was a guy. He was hard-pressed on doing things. Let's go. Let's die. All right? So just get that picture in your mind of who Thomas is. Now, he appears again in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking. And I want to give you the context of what Jesus says so what Thomas says then makes sense. Jesus is speaking. It's one of his last encounters with his disciples. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. 
you know the way to the place where I am going. So Jesus is giving this somewhat cryptic language, speaking of, I am going, I will leave you. When I leave you, I'm preparing a place. We spent a lot of time looking at this. When you, If you were here during uh, John chapter 14, we went and looked at this. the place that he's going to prepare undoes all the curse of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. So he's going to go back and create this place that's like the Garden of Eden, where you and I desperately want to go. He's back to the Garden of Eden. Jesus said, I'm going to go prepare that place. And you guys know the way to get there. Thomas is the only one who has the guts to ask the question. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Okay, the rest of them are thinking it, all right? But Thomas has the guts to say it. And of course, he sticks his neck out, and Jesus chops it off. He says, Jesus answered, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know me, and have, and have seen him. Excuse me, from now on, you do know him, and have seen him. In other words, Thomas, you're the only one I'd guts to say what I really needed to get out here. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father because we are one in the, in the Trinity. There's three parts of the Trinity. I am one with him. Now, Thomas is the guy who has the guts to ask the question. He's a gutsy guy. It'd probably be more accurate to call it Gutsy Thomas. All right? Gutsy Thomas. In so far, that has got him nothing but on the good side. Today, we're going to look at how that doesn't get him in the good side. That 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 recklessness. Maybe you, some of you have kids like that. My my second child, John, was one of those kids. He was one of the kids, and when he was real young, he had no fear. Like he would just stand like a brick and just fall off the couch. That kind of a deal, you know. And I'd pretend to catch him every now and then, and you know, um, he just he just was a brick. And the other kids' knees would bend a little bit, but John was arms next to each other and just straight, rigid. And some of you are like that. Some of you are nuts. I've been on climbing walls with you and stuff. And I've played splat ball with you or whatever. And you're just, ah! You're just those kind of people. That, that's Thomas, okay? That's Thomas. And some of you are like that. And that's good. Thomas has a lot of good, a lot of really great qualities. Now, where was Thomas? This is a great question. Where was Thomas? Because it says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came the first time. Where was Thomas? It doesn't say. I'm going to be honest. It doesn't say. But if you know this much about Thomas, you can maybe speculate. It happens, by the way, uh, on the Sunday, Easter Sunday, they're gathering. This event happens in the morning where Mary and Peter and John see the empty tomb. They come back, report it. But when they're, later that night when they're together, after Jesus has appeared to Mary, later that night, Thomas is not there. There's all this news happening about Jesus and Thomas isn't there. And you've got to ask the question, where is Thomas? And I view Thomas, okay, just this is speculation, okay? Just hang with me now. But I view Thomas as this hardcore guy. And he's hard after following Jesus. He says, Jesus, all right, man, I don't get it, but you're the way and the truth and life. Sounds good to me. Pack my bags, let's go. We're going to die with them. And as, we, as he goes, he sees Jesus get arrested. He sees his hero being nailed to a cross. He watches his hope dwindle as the life dwindles out of Christ. He watches Jesus die. He watches the guy stab him, or he hears about it. We're not sure he was right there, but all of this is known to Thomas. 
I can see in Thomas an element of anger, frustration, being let down. What did you do, Jesus? What's going on? And so now the disciples are hanging together, and Thomas says, I don't have anything to do with that. Possibly, possibly. He wasn't there. What did he miss? It says, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Now, I'm sure that conversation wasn't just, we've seen the Lord. I'm sure there's a lot more to that. Thomas wasn't there. They come over to Thomas and go, dude, I am not kidding you. Doors were locked. We're all there, eating a cheeseburger, and out of nowhere, boom, there's the risen Christ. You know what he says to us? He says, peace be with you. Remember I said last week, that's, how's it going, eh? He just says, Hi. In not a scary way, but just, hi, here I am. Not boo. Remember, boo would have been bad, but hi. <laughs> and he says, look at my side. Look at my hands. Here I am. He appeared. And you could see Thomas going, <laughs> yeah. And what are you guys smoking? That's insane. People who are stabbed in the gut... People who are nailed to a cross don't just come into locked rooms and say, how's it going? They don't do that. You guys got issues, and you're either circulating a lie, or you've all like really got into some type of trance or something. You saw something really weird. And Thomas then says, I think something very remarkable. Thomas says his condition, or you could call it his prayer. I don't know. Or maybe it's his opposition. I'm not sure which it is. I really am not. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Three conditions, right? Not just, it's interesting. He says, put my hands in his hands, put my finger where the nails were. And just to make sure that it's just not any crucified guy who's been raised from the dead, I want the one who was stabbed too. So I want to put my hand into his side. Not just see it, but I want to like go in there and Yep, that's the spleen. Yeah, there's the liver. Yep, it's good. It's Jesus. Okay? So again, I don't know. I really don't know. Is it a condition? Is it a, is it a cry as a prayer? Or is it his opposition? Like, I tell you what, I'm going to throw you out. When pigs fly kind of a thing, you know? It could be. I'm not sure which one of those it is, but that's his condition. Now, the amazing thing sometimes in Scripture is God answers stupid prayers. Uh, there, are, I mean, you might think, oh, God, okay, if you're really there right now, make China come and be in the middle of Kansas or something. Now, and people ask the questions like that of God, okay, proof, God isn't really there. I don't know how that would even physically happen. I have no idea. I just made that one up. But uh, there are some times where, where people ask such stupid things of God and then it's proof that he doesn't exist, or proof that he's not really there, or proof that he doesn't really care. Thomas asks an amazing thing. He says, I want to see. I want to see. If I don't get to see, I don't believe. That, that's it. Flat out. I don't get to see, I don't believe. And that's my condition. And there is no going back on it. Now, in the Bible, we call that testing God. In the Bible, we call that, I demand a sign. I demand you show me something. And it's not very favorably seen in the Bible. And yet, and yet, and yet, Jesus meets Thomas exactly where he's at. I mean, sometimes I just scratch my head and go, 
How hard-hearted, bull-headed, pig-headed was Thomas, and Jesus meets him exactly there. And then I stop and think, how hard-hearted, how hard-headed, how pig-headed am I? And Jesus meets me right there. Verse 26 keeps going on. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, now that's interesting. A week later, it puts us on the next Sunday. All right, so they're having church. Right? First Sunday was Easter. Second Sunday, they're back together. They're hanging out. And this time, Thomas is not late. He's not hanging out with Pastor Pillow and Deacon Sheets. He is actually going to church. No excuses here. He's coming. And he comes this time. It's amazing that he's there. It's amazing that Thomas shows up. I don't know what, what they do, a good attendance pin, or I don't know what he wanted. Somehow Thomas shows up to church. It says the doors were locked. Now it tells us before why the doors were locked. Why were the doors locked? Anybody? Fear of the Jews. They're still afraid of the Jews. They just saw Jesus a week ago. I don't know, maybe that only lasts four days or something. Because they're, they're, again, the doors are locked. When these doors are locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said again, the greeting, peace be with you. Then he looks over to Thomas and he answers him word for word. He says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. He doesn't just say, take a look. He says, go ahead and touch me. Go ahead and put it in. If you want to do that, you go ahead and do that. And then he says to, to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Now, that's an unfortunate translation. It's very unfortunate. Because the word doubting and believe are the exact same word. It's just one has an A in front of it. So it's like saying theism and atheism. A, a in a lot of languages uh, just means the opposite. Okay, so like a Gnostic is someone who knows and an agnostic is someone who really doesn't know anything. Okay. Like pull is something you have, and an apple, and no, it's different. The, the, uh, <laughs> I was frantically looking for a third illustration, and it just wasn't there. So, uh, so it's really saying, stop not believing, stop unbelieving, and believe, or stop being faithless and be a person of faith. That's what he's really saying. How does Thomas take that rebuke? Because it's a rebuke. He says, stop it. Stop it. I showed up exactly where you're at, but you know what? Stop it. Because if it's not this today, Thomas, it's going to be something else tomorrow. Stop it. So he, he's, he's rebuking Thomas for this doubting. He's rebuking Thomas for this not having faith. The words of the disciples should have been enough for you, Thomas, but... But I am going to show up for you anyways. And Thomas' response is the most Christological phrase by anyone uttered in Scripture. He gets to say, my Lord and my God. I'm sure he fell to his feet. And he said, my Lord and my God. No one else in Scripture is able to give that level. Even Peter's declaration where he says, I, we believe that you are the Christ. That's an awesome thing to say. But here, Thomas gets to say, you're Lord and you're God. 
Some people have tried to just say, oh, Thomas isn't really going to say that. That's not what he really says. It's an exclamation. You know, it's like saying, my, my gosh, okay, my Lord and my God. Now, that's, that linguistically could possibly work, and people would say it's not really a, Thomas isn't really calling Jesus God. It could possibly work, except you've got to realize this is a Jewish culture. You don't just drop the name of God around. If you drop the name of God around, you definitely get rebuked. You don't get encouraged, because look at how Jesus responds to that. Verse 29, he says, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. He doesn't say, Whoa, what are you doing? What are you doing? Dropping. It's like dropping the F-bomb. Okay, it'd be that vulgar in that culture to say, My God, about something. You just don't do that. And he says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. And then he goes on to say, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And again, that's a bit of a zinger on Thomas. That's a bit of a hack job. You needed to put your hand in there and go around and grab my liver. Blessed are those who haven't seen. And also, as a reader, as John is writing this for us, we're, I don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. Let me encourage you with something. The Bible teaches that we live in the best possible age right now. Right now, after Pentecost, after the Spirit of God came, you and I live in the best possible age. So don't, don't go around saying, oh, if I could just have seen the, the real Christ, if I could just seen him do the miracles. Thomas saw all that stuff, and he still had to take his finger and put it in there. Don't, don't, give, don't fool yourself into thinking, oh, it would have been much easier then. It wasn't. And Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet put their faith in me. And yet they believed Yet they've put their trust, they've put their hope, they're banking their treasure. That's what it means to believe. All those things, not just an intellectual ascent, it's banking yourself, it's putting yourself out. Now, Gospel of John then moves on from this and he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's going on? He tells the purpose of the entire book that he wrote. Right here. The entire Gospel of John, he's laying down. He's saying that the reason I'm writing about all these different signs and everything, there's a reason here. And the reason is that you would believe. Did Thomas believe? The answer is yes. He, he, he laid himself down and said, my Lord, my God. Tradition tells us that Thomas later became a preacher to ancient Babylon near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers by the modern day Iraq. And it tells us also that he ended up preaching all over that region until finally in around 72 AD, he was uh, martyred, thrown into a pit, pierced through with some, uh, by a spear that someone who he was trying to reach. So Thomas ended up, ended up dying. That, that's what tradition tells us. You know, it's not a thick account of that, but that's as much as we have. Thomas became one of these people who decided, I'm going to follow Christ no matter what. This passage says, this whole book is written that you may believe. And that if you believe... That he is, and it's key there, it says you believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Now that should ring a bell. If you've been around us for two years, that should ring a bell, because that goes all the way back to John chapter 1. There's a link between the end of John chapter 20 and John chapter 1 that is striking. I just want to quote a few things from John chapter 1. As we started this, way back, it says, John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 4, In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Verse 12, um, Previous to that, it says, uh, uh, he came to that which was his own, and his own didn't receive him. But then it says in verse 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name. There it is, believed. He gave the right to become children of God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the, his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, or the one and only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Then it goes under this account of John the Baptist, and then if you keep going down, it goes on this account of calling of the first disciples, some of them. And Andrew is one of them. And this whole account, uh, Andrew goes on to find uh, Simon. And then he tells him, he says, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, the Christ. They go on to find, I think I misspoke there, Andrew goes to find Simon, they go on to find Nathaniel, and then Nathaniel declares in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Now, it's very important you get this, because what's John trying to get across? He says, but these are written that you may believe, what do you have to believe? It's very important, right? That Jesus is the Christ. In other words, that's what all the Bible is pushing up toward, is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the coming one. He's the Messiah. He's the sin sacrifice. He's going to be king. He's everything. He's the one to look to. Is Jesus Christ important to Christianity? Duh! Yes! He's everything. You can't be a Christian and not put Jesus at the center of everything. You must believe that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. Not only that, he's not just Messiah. He is the Son of God. That's very important, right? John says if you believe this, that's what's going to happen. He is the Christ, comma, the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. The fully God, fully man. He came to earth, died on the cross as a sin substitute for you and I. You may believe that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, and here's the goodies, that by believing, you get life. When? Now. When? Later. Both. It's crescendoing up to eternal life. I was thinking about this. I'm 43 now, so I think about death more. I think it's a, I have a death wish. And I've been thinking about, do I have a, am, am I just fixated on death? I wonder about that sometimes. I may just, I remember when I turned, and I never really thought about death until I was 25. Anybody under 25 here? You're not going to die. You're just not going to die. When I turned 25, all of a sudden I said, dude, this death thing is not just a concept. You know, like an imaginary number? You know what I mean? Square of a negative one? It's like, what is that? What is that? It's an imaginary thing. Death, it was just kind of like square of a negative one. Tell you at 25. At 25, it's like, oh, oh, I'm really going to die. I'm going to die dead, pushing daisies, done, over. The world's going to go on. It's going to, you know, I, I like me, I hope, you know. But uh, when I die, it's a hiccup. 
Oh, boo-hoo-hoo. Oh, what's for dinner? You know, I mean, it's, the world is going to keep going. <laughs> you know, no offense, but you too. You know, I mean, we're all just, it's, it's just, it's just going to keep going. And you're going to go down. We're all going to go down. And is there life after death? It was a rhetorical question. But you can answer it if you want. Yes. I'm banking everything on that. If there's not, give me more of the dos coronos. I got a different way I'm going to live my life if there's not eternal life. I do not live my life because, oh, this is hunky-dory. Uh-uh. I would be a million times more selfish than I am already. And that, Carol can testify, is pushing it, you know. It's different. Life everlasting is coming. I, I, just, I just felt that in me. I didn't even have that on here. Now, <clears throat> I want to close by asking this question. I want to close by asking a very practical question. As you look at Thomas, he's the guy that clearly we talk about as being the doubter. He's clearly the guy that didn't believe. All right? And he's given a hard time for it. And Jesus gives him a hard time, and rightly so. The question that I have is, what about doubt? This is what I want to close with today. This is our takeaway for this. What about doubt? Is it good or is it bad? And I, I'm going to get a little postmodern here and say yes, okay? Uh, is it good or is it bad? I want to answer this question because I think in Scripture, when you look at the issue of belief and pushing it to the opposite or unbelief, or if you want to call it doubt, where it's skepticism, order, I think there's a progression. I really do. And I think I can, I think I can, uh, you can, you can email me if you, if you have uh, thoughts more about this, because I'd love to hear what you're thinking. Um, I would call the first step in the progression of, of doubt, I'm going to call it doubt, and that's really a bad title, because one of my steps is doubt, but you get the idea. This, this whole thing of away from belief, first step, is what I'd call questioning. Questioning. I think questioning is great. I think, I mean, I teach theology here, and I come out with more questions every time I teach this stuff. There's so much in theology that I, I just, I understand the basic concepts, and then I start to push on it a little bit. It's kind of like pushing on green jello, you know. It's like, wow, that's squeezed out over there. How do, just kind of goes every which way. It's like, wow, how does that work, God? How can you be 100% sovereign over every molecule that ever exists and we're responsible for our behavior? How does that really work? You know, really stop and think about that. So a lot of, I just have questions, a lot of questions. And scripturally, one of my favorite questions in the Bible is Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she's told she's going to have this baby, she asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel is pleased to answer that question. God loves honest questions. But you've got to be careful with the question. Because the question, just asking the question, takes you up to the fence line of belief or unbelief. It does. You can come to that and ask a question and then go, yeah, right. Yeah, right. I'm a virgin for crying out loud. Right? She doesn't. If you remember the end of that account, she says, let it be as you have said, I'm the Lord's servant. That's what she says. She, she falls back on the side of belief. But, but she'd go, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's mathematically impossible. It doesn't happen that way. Not going to happen. That would be bad. Okay? So questions are good, but they get you right to that fence line. Now as we start to lean over, I'd call the next phase 
Um, oh, excuse me. Even, even Luther had questions. That's one of, my, one of my great quotes here. Luther, he's looking at his children, and his children had this childlike trust and faith in God that blew Luther away. And he says, and, and I, who would give my body to be burned, find myself asking, is it really so? Luther asks that. You know, is this really true? Is this just a bunch of fairy tales? Or do I, is this really true? Luther asks that. I like that, because there's times when I go, no one in the ark. That really, it wasn't like Evan Almighty, I'm sure. But, yeah, it, it, it goes through it. Luther went through that. Now, second phase is what I would call doubt. Doubt. Passage that I would use for this idea is um, there's a story of a man who comes up to Jesus and he's, he's, he's asking about his son and he wants his son to be healed. Jesus asks him, uh, that's the boy's father in Mark chapter 9, how long has it been, how long has he been like this? And the guy says, from childhood. <clears throat> It is, it is often thrown, he's talking about a, a demon that's taking control of this child and it's causing him all kinds of things and Jesus wants him healed, or excuse me, the father wants him healed or wants the demon cast out. It is often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. And then he asks this question, but if you can do anything about it, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus in his wisdom picks up on that. He says, if you can If you can, did you just say if you can? He's pretty astute. Everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's like one of my daily prayers. I do believe. And I struggle so much with this. There's so many things I struggle with trusting you in God. There's so many times. You want to just get down to it? Every time that I choose to go away other than God's, it's unbelief, right? Because I don't believe that God is really who he says he is. I don't believe that God actually says he's really promised me things. Ah, that this other way. I can go this other way. I can just tell a little white lie and it won't hurt them as so much. It's, it's kind. God says, no, be truthful. Be truthful. Grandma's mashed potatoes aren't good. You say, Grandma, I don't like your mashed potatoes. Grandma, I love you. Mashed potatoes, not so much. Okay? Don't, don't go using that round. Just be sensitive. But, you know, I mean, okay. <clears throat> That's, there's this element of doubt that comes in. And Jesus does correct it. He says, if you can. Remember, the guy doesn't say, I know you can't do anything. He doesn't say that. But he says, if you can. The next one is what I call skepticism. Someone who basically says, keep showing me proof. Keep showing me proof. This is found in Luke chapter 1. Same story as... As uh, Mary, an angel appears to this time, a guy by the name of Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's father. He's an old man. It's not going to be a virgin birth for John the Baptist, but it's, he's, they're both old men. Zechariah and Elizabeth are old people. And they come and say, you're going to have a son. He's going to rock. He's going to be the best. He's going to announce Jesus coming. It's going to be fantastic. And Zechariah says... How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. In other words, how can I know this for certain? And the answer given to him, the first words are, I am Gabriel. You know, when a dude, the angel says, this is who I am. It's not, what's coming next is not good. Okay? It's going to happen because I just told you it's going to happen. What more proof do you want? And, and, and Zechariah says, I need more. It's a skepticism. It's gone now from doubt to uh, if you can just give me a little more, God. I just need a little, I need another sign. I need a little something here. It goes from skepticism to what I call full-blown unbelief, which is a refusal to believe and obey. 
By the way, I think that Thomas goes into the skepticism category. I won't see unless I have signs. I won't believe it. You're moving down dangerous territory when you're here. You move to a point which is frightening in Scripture. I want to give this to you as a warning. This is you, and you're wandering down to a point where you've hardened yourself to where you've said, I don't even care if there are signs. I'm going to move myself. I don't care what happens. It's a refusal. The word in the Bible is interesting. It's apatheia, which is where we get apathy, which we think someone doesn't care a whole lot. It's just the opposite. Apathy means a stubborn refusal to believe. It's often translated in the Bible as disobedience. And it's really more than disobedience. It's a, it's a hard-heartedness to push away constantly. It's a refusal to believe. I will not. I will not. Hebrews has, I think, one of the strongest warnings of this. And the word disobedience is this word for unbelief or not believing or doubting to an extreme. It's on steroids. It says, for, someone, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. The writer of the Hebrews is trying to talk about this idea of what is the Sabbath really about? Why did God rest on the seventh day? And it's a, it's a picture of, of us being with Christ finally in heaven. This is a picture of being in God's rest, returning back to the Garden of Eden. And again in the, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in. They don't get the rest. Why? Because of their, here's this word, stubborn Unbelief, stubborn refusal, stubborn skepticism, stubborn always questioning. Another question, I've been with people where they have a million questions and finally I say, listen, if I could answer every one of your questions, would you become a Christian? And if the answer is still no, you're in this category. You're in this category. Because it it's not about questions, you're just having a fun time trying to ring logical circles around me. Verse 7, therefore God again sent a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of, and here's this word, disobedience, stubborn refusal to believe, unbelief, will not go there. I will not. When push comes to shove, and I ask the questions that many of you ask, hey, wait a minute, is this really all true? When push comes to shove, if you take all the layers of the onion down, you get down to the very bottom of what ultimately sustains me, I say to myself, who is Jesus Christ? Who really was he? Did the resurrection really happen? Were the scars, and it ultimately comes down to Thomas, did the scars and the, and the, and the spear side that I can't literally put my hand into, but are they really there? Is there a risen Christ? And the evidence clearly says yes. That's the thing that is the anchor for all of my belief system. From there on, it builds back up. And there's times where it just, I remember once in seminary, it was like a three-hour freak-out period. I was freaking out whether I believed any of this. And it all collapsed down in about a three-hour period, and it all built back up. And if you'd have seen me at nine in the morning that night, or nine at night, 
I said that stupid. Nine in the morning or nine at night, you'd have said, oh, no difference. And you didn't know the horror that I'd gone through in that day. One of my dead mentors, Charles Spurgeon, and I'll close with this, says it this way. In these times when the foundations of our faith are constantly being undermined, one is sometimes driven to say to himself, suppose it's not true. As I stood the other night beneath the sky and watched the stars, I felt my heart going up to the great maker with all the love I was capable of. I said to myself, what made me love God as I know I do? What made me feel an anxiety to be like him in purity? Whatever made me long to obey my God cannot be a lie. I know that it was the love of Jesus for me that changed my heart and made me, though once careless and indifferent to him, now to pant with strong desires to honor him. What has done this? Not a lie, surely. A truth then has done it. I know it by its fruits. Now listen to what, this is Charles Spurgeon says this next line. This blew me away. If this Bible were to turn out untrue, wow. And if I died and went before my maker, could I not say to him, I believe great things of thee, great God. If it be not so, yet did I honor thee by the faith I had concerning thy wondrous goodness and thy power to forgive, and I would cast myself upon his mercy without fear. That's a major doubt. What if it's really not true? And then he says this, but we do not entertain such doubts. I'm not going to linger there. I come to those areas of questions and I say, God, I'm going to fall off. May it be as you say, as Mary said. I'm not going to keep going down the roads of doubt and skepticism and finally unbelief. I'm not going to go there. I don't understand all things, but I'm going to trust you. For those dear wounds, the wounds of Christ, continually prove the truth of the gospel and the truth of our salvation by it. Incarnate deity is a thought that was never invented by a poet's mind, nor reasoned out by a philosopher's skill. Incarnate deity, the notion of the God that lived and bled and died in human human form instead of guilty man, is itself its own best witness. The wounds are the infallible witness of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, we pray to a wounded Savior. A Savior who showed himself to Thomas with his wounds. A Savior who this morning has shown us by those same wounds. Yes, we can't put our fingers on them or in them. But your word gives a promise. It says, blessed or happy are those who believe without seeing. So, Lord God, I I ask by your Holy Spirit this morning you'd grant us a gift. That you'd meet us where we're at this morning in this room. That wherever we're at, that you'd, you'd meet us. That you'd draw us to yourself. You'd show us your wounds. God, I just confess that I'm just like Thomas. Bullheaded. Wanting to go my own way. Putting demands upon you. God, you have been so gracious to me and to these people who are, are, who are 
in front of right now. Lord God, you are gracious to them too. So God, we ask this morning that you would come by your Holy Spirit and that you would give them a picture of you. Let them feel the wounds. Let them know the wounds. The incarnate deity who died for them. Lord, if there are people here this morning who are wandering into stage four, who are wandering into disobedience, flat out running away, flat out hardening their hearts, flat out shaking their fist at you and refusal to believe, God, would you be gracious enough to rebuke them this morning in your spirit? God, would it even come with, like Thomas, I'm sure it was very hard to hear these rebukes. God, would it come even in ways that are real hard for us to hear? Holy Spirit, we give you freedom to do anything, anything that it takes to take away our unbelief. Lord, if there are people in this room for the first time in their lives are moving away from unbelief and for the first time in their lives want to be just like Thomas and declare, my Lord and my God. Lord, would you give them the courage this morning to do it? For the first time in their lives, they want to want to say, Jesus, I want I want you to be my sin bearer. I'm tired of running on my own. I'm tired of living a life of unbelief. I want to follow you. Jesus, would you not leave them alone when they come to you? Surely you won't do that. Would you come this morning, even as we sing this last song, would you come by your power of your Holy Spirit and meet each person exactly where they need to be met? We pray this all in Christ's name.